They have a type of hill in Eretz Yisrael that they call a kerkar. Like most natural formations in Israel, it's not much. Just a petrified sand dune. And when one of these hills, or any place really, has had people on it for centuries, building and living and suffering, loving and dying, one generation on top of another, well, archaeologists call all that layered and forgotten information a tell. T-E-L. Tell. There are a lot of tells in Israel. People like living there. Maybe a little too much. But on one particular Kirkar, there's a tell that's still a city. The book of Joshua calls the city Yavnael. The Romans called it Jamnia. The Crusaders, Ibelin. Most people call it Yavna these days. And it's where Judaism was saved from flames by a man who hid in a coffin. And where the law was finally written down after a long journey through deserts and centuries. And where, interestingly enough, they now make Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Go figure. If there was a book, and it took a year to read, seven years to read, a lifetime to read, if there was a book, and each page contained centuries, if there was a book, and that book was burned, over and over and over again. Would you read it? I'm Mo Martin, and this is Radio Free Babylonia. Today, we're going to talk about the Mishnah, which is the earliest part of the Talmudic project. It's called the Mishnah, the recitation or repetition, because originally that's what made a rabbi. In those days, a rabbi would go around muttering to himself, repeating his teacher's questions, statements, and interpretations over and over again, to the point where people thought that rabbis were magicians, constantly muttering their spells. Eventually, these questions, statements, and interpretations were memorized or physically written down. There are six orders, or in Hebrew, starim, of Mishnah. But what conditions led to a diffuse collection of muttered sayings being turned into the six orderly books of the Mishnah? To understand that, we're going to try a little magic of our own a psycho-spiritual exercise called playing pretend. Or if you prefer to be taken more seriously, unitive time consciousness. That's a term coined by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who liked to be taken very seriously indeed. Either way, the game works like this. You must imagine the end. And I don't just mean the convenient stopping point. And... I certainly don't mean happily ever after. I mean the desolation, the despair, the belief that there will be no more tomorrow, never any more tomorrows. This shouldn't be so hard. We're drenched in the apocalypse in this day and age. One day you're fighting, 
desperate to hold it all together to keep everyone else from turning on each other. You're rallying them to the cause, the cause that no one can agree on, the cause that involves fighting off your enemy, if we could just agree who the enemy is. And then one day, there's nothing to hold together anymore. Everyone's dead, or soon to be dead. You've already lost. Or, at the very least, you can see it coming. It's breathing down your neck. Do you quit fighting? And if you do, does that make you a coward? Or a prophet? These are the questions facing Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the man who will begin the project that eventually becomes the Mishnah. One day, in the year 69 CE, Rabbi Yochanan faces the hard questions. Will he stay true to the clearly doomed rebellion against Rome? Does he even have anything in common with the Sicarii, the Daggermen, the deadly proponents of violent revolt? Does he side with the priestly Sadducees, who don't even believe in an afterlife? Will he attempt to save the small circle of sages he presides over? The questions torment him. So he dies. Or, to be more precise, he takes up residence in a coffin. What does it mean when the world is ending? Certainly there's a lot of death. That's a part of it. But then again, millions of people die every day. And each one is beautiful and has an idea or a feeling or a belief that we will never see again. And maybe that's it. Maybe in articulating the tragedy of an individual death, we are closer to understanding what an apocalypse means. The loss. The unimaginable loss, followed by the grieving. Endless grieving. And rejoicing. For has not justice come? Certainly judgment has. So things get pulled in, in many directions which is maybe why there's no unified Jewish resistance to Rome when the rebellion starts in 66 CE. The Romans, on the other hand, who don't think the world is ending at all, are very organized. Which is why, three years later, in 69 CE, you can only get out of besieged Jerusalem if you're already dead. Or at least, in a coffin. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, in his coffin, is carried into the camp of the Roman commander, a man named Vespasian. Ben Zakkai pops out of his coffin, turns to Vespasian, and says, Hail, King! And before Vespasian can say, Guards, kill the Jew! A messenger brings him the news. Emperor Nero is dead, and the Eastern legions have declared their commander, one Vespasian, Emperor of Rome. Now, wait a minute, you say. How can Vespasian be emperor just like that? What about Galba and Otho and the tragic wars of the year of the four emperors? What about the threat of Vitellius in the West that Vespasian needs to crush before he can even enter Rome? And these are all excellent questions. But when the world ends, even if it takes months or centuries or millennia, Everything happens at once. The temple was destroyed in 70 CE. In 69 CE, Yochanan ben Zakkai already sees it burning. 
Every day since that terrible ninth of Av, Jews in synagogues, in ghettos, in concentration camps, have seen the temple rebuilt with Messiah serving as high priest just over the next horizon. As a reward for his prophecy, Vespasian grants Yochanan ben Zakkai one request. Ben Zakkai makes three. He has the city of Yavna declared a refuge for the sages. He asks for a safe passage for the family of Rabban Gamliel, rumored to be the direct descendant of King David and therefore the forefather of Messiah. And he also requests doctors for Rebbe Zadok, who has been fasting for the salvation of Jerusalem, a salvation that will not come. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Judaism under siege? An implacable, megalomaniacal foe? Rebuilding from the ashes? Is this the Judaism of the 1st and 2nd century? Or the 20th and 21st? When does this story take place? Nearly 2,000 years ago? Or 1945? Or this very moment? Or tomorrow? We don't know. Certainly Ben Zakkai doesn't know. He can't tell the difference between one boon from the emperor and three. Between a request that answers present needs for a refuge, future needs for a messiah, or the preservation of the past in the form of Rebbe Tzadok. This is the world and mind that gives birth to the Mishnah, a constant, unending, post-catastrophic world. The Mishnah will begin, if it can be said to begin anywhere, with the same obliviousness to time. It opens. What time does one recite the Shema in the evening? Wait, what's the Shema? How do I recite it? What about the morning? The Mishnah believes you know the answers to these questions already. Heck, believes Abraham knew the answers to these questions, way back before there even was a Shema to say. The Mishnah is the deepest layer of the Talmud. The Talmud, like a tell, is layered information and discussion and passion. And there at the bottom is the Mishnah, a series of recorded debate positions. On this side of the issue stand the sages, on that side Rabbi Yehuda. On this side, Hillel, on that side, Shammai. But wait, why does Rabbi Meir hold this opinion and Rabbi Shimon hold that one? Why is the issue they're talking about so important anyway? And so we need to go deeper than the deepest layer of the text. And what we find is the end of the world. The Mishnah is written as the Jewish world is crumbling. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the center of all Jewish life for the past 200 years, marks the beginning of the Mishnaic, or Tanaitic, era. The era comes to a close roughly around 200 CE, after the Romans' largely successful violent de-Judaizing of the population of Judea, which gets renamed Palestina. This is a time marked by brutal persecution and a deep national grieving. The very fact that we have a written Mishnah, and not an oral tradition, marks the desperation of the rabbis of this time. Can we trust that our children will learn these words? Best to write them down, so that they may be recovered at some point. Write them down and bury them, perhaps in a milk can.
except there were no milk cans in the time of the Mishnah. And what other anachronisms have snuck into our mental images of it? What other pictures from our own disasters and chaotic lives have been projected onto the screen of the Mishnah? Does the Mishnah consider itself an apocalyptic text, a message at the end of the world? Or have we, a broken sectarian Judaism, a Judaism in the wake of the deaths of millions, a Judaism that has seen the horrors of a world blessedly unimaginable to the rabbis of the Mishnah, have we cast ourselves backwards in time? The hand that is heavy with tragedy, gravely inscribing the words of the Mishnah, is that a tattoo we see on its arm? Whose world ended? Theirs or ours? Let us instead imagine a Mishnah as it imagines itself. The rabbis of the Mishnah do what Jews have always done, teach and learn Torah. They can even see their own Torah innovations and new institutions in the distant past. Sure, in a way, here, after the burning of the temple, they're the first generation of rabbis. But really, doesn't the Mishnah refer to Moses himself as a rabbi, teaching Torah years before the temple was even built, let alone destroyed? Didn't Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai learn of his own daring escape years before it happened? Just as Moses, learning from God on Sinai, hears of his own death and burial on Mount Pisgah? The Mishnah sees itself as a cessation, a whispered, complimentary Torah, handed down from Moses, the first rabbi, at Sinai. At the beginning of the section known as Pirkei Avot, the sayings of the fathers, Moses, it says, passed this Torah to Joshua, meaning this shadow Torah, this oral Torah. Joshua, in turn, passed it to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the Sanhedrin, and so on, throughout the generations of Jewish leadership. The Mishnah continues a tradition of Torah discussion and dissection. No world ends. The chain just keeps getting forged. The Torah is on the mouth of each generation, still muttered and pondered over and argued. So how do you survive a catastrophe? A loss of a temple, or a loved one, or a world? You go on, and in some ways everything has changed, and in some ways nothing has. You're still you, with the same questions, same arguments. Perhaps you can see the world still going on, and your learning helps you keep living in it. Or perhaps the world is over, but the repetition must go on, must outlast you and this desolation. Either way, why not get a little lost in time? We are creatures of our own lives, seeing them endlessly repeated, and how we view the past, and how we enact the future. So send yourself backwards. Maybe the Mishnah is a recovery from a catastrophe, just like the 20th and 21st century have proved to be. Or maybe Moses was a rabbi, just like the first rabbis on record, the ones who wrote the Mishnah. Unfocus yourself and recite. Repeat after me. 
מהם הטייקונים לשמה באדווי, משעה שהכוהנים נכנסים לאוכל בתרומתם עד סוף השמונה הראשונה. דברי רבי אליעזר. This episode of Radio Free Babylonia was written and performed by Mo Martin. Special thanks to Harry Waxberg, Duncan McCullough, Jamie Goodman, Dan Pasternak, Michael Shane, Josh Schwartz, and David Svi Kalman. Radio Free Babylonia was produced and edited by me, Michal Richardson, for Jewish Public Media, which creates Jewish media for all audiences and is supported by Next and Atan. If you like this episode, Get in touch with us at www.radiofreebabylonia.org. While you're there, check out the Jewish public media podcast Responsa Radio, a reasonable and not boring conversation about Jewish law. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and just about any way you listen to podcasts. We're everywhere. But we'd love it if you'd subscribe and rate us in iTunes. It actually helps. Thank you. Stupid!